Hi there and welcome to a new episode of Impact Talks. Today we have Jigger Shaw with us. He is best known as the founder of Sun Edison where he pioneered no money down solar and unlocked a multi-billion dollar solar market, creating the largest solar services company worldwide. In 2009, he joined Richard Branson to be the first CEO of the Carbon War Room, a global non-profit commitment to supporting global entrepreneurs scale their climate solutions. Nowadays, he's a co-founder of Generate Capital, an investment and operating platform that builds, owns, operates, and finances infrastructure assets involving the world's critical resources like energy, water, agriculture, and basic materials. I can go on for another hour probably explaining it, but please tell the people uh, what you do and where you're from. <laughs> no, I appreciate that introduction. I... Uh help to make sustainability solutions uh, bankable. So what you find is, is that if you wanted to put solar on your uh, church or your synagogue or your school and you went to the local bank, they would say, no, we don't understand solar. Why, why would we do that, right? That was 2003. Today, they would say yes. Pretty much every bank in the United States understands what solar is and is doing it. Now, if you ask them to do a fuel cell or anaerobic digester or electric vehicle taxi fleet, they would say, we don't know what you're talking about. And so what I do is I put in the first money through Generate Capital into those assets. We figure out all the rules and all the checklists. We share that with all of the entrepreneurs so that they bring in deals that we're willing to fund. And then we explain to banks and others why they should be willing to fund it too, right? And over time, what we find is that time is getting shorter and shorter. It used to take us six years from when we invested to when the broader marketplace was copying us. And now that number is three years. And we hope in the next few months that that number will be two years, right? And so the goal is to bring trillions of dollars into climate solutions. How did you get to this point? Because I'm assuming you didn't just come off from a very wealthy family into this and suddenly you're changing the landscape of the whole solar energy. How did you get started into all of this? Yeah, my dad is uh, an immigrant and came to the United States with very little money and, uh, you know, was a medical doctor and, you know, we had to move to a rural town because, you know, there's a lot of racism. And so like the places where you could find the best jobs were in rural towns that desperately needed you. So we grew up in a town of 14,000 people, which was fantastic. Um, and then I went- Where was that? To Sterling, Illinois. So uh, near the Quad Cities, about two and a half hours outside of Chicago. And then I went to the University of Illinois and got my mechanical engineering degree. So when I entered clean energy, I came in as an engineer and thought, these, these solutions make a lot of sense. They save people money. They're a better technology. We've been using the steam engine for 200 years. It's time to switch to something better. And, um, you know, and we just got told no. And so, you know, I'm a curious guy. So I kept asking, well, why did you say no? And, you know, they would make up excuses. And in the end, what you realize is they said no because they didn't have 20 other friends who've, who've said yes before them. And they all move as a pack. And so the way that finance works is everyone thinks, oh, these guys are the smartest people in the room. They hire the smartest people. But in fact, they basically do what they believe their friends will allow them to do. And, you know, they don't want to be ahead of the rest of their friends. This is in the infrastructure space, right? So these are people who have 
money that's really cheap, 3%, 4%, 5%, 6% money, right? Obviously, in the venture capital space, people take a lot of risk. They do a lot of weird things. And in general, I would say the vast majority of the media talks about venture capital. But the real money is in infrastructure, right? We spend about $10 trillion a year in infrastructure, right? Building new roads, building bridges, building buildings, all this other stuff. And that is where climate change and sustainability works, is building roads out of low carbon cement, building buildings out of engineered wood instead of you know steel, right? All of these solutions that entrepreneurs are pitching venture capitalists every day are being stymied because infrastructure investors are saying, we don't want to do anything new. We don't want to do anything different. And so, you know, I got here by just studying why solar, which was my passion from 1996, like why solar wasn't getting, you know, evaluated fairly by the market. And it took me, you know, probably six or seven years to figure out the answer. But once you figure out the answer, then you can figure out how to manipulate the system to get them to do things differently. So what was the answer and what were the steps to manipulate that? Well, ultimately, what you realize is that there's actually a, a system, right? There are people who are very wealthy, who these banks trust, right? And sometimes the banks are, the, the people are not family offices, but they're like Goldman Sachs, right? Or there's something like that. So, you know, you find that like, so we got a high net worth individual in Dallas who was very well respected, who did the first deal and he did it at 18% interest. Right. Can, can I ask who it was? Is it someone famous? It was a guy named Mike Miller. He was, uh, you know, one of the most uh, famous CFOs for auto leasing companies. So he had worked with all the Wall Street banks on auto leasing. And, you know, this is in the late 90s, 2000s. How did you get him convinced to step into something which was at the time so unconventional? No, it's it's I don't know. Like, you know, he's a smart guy. Right. And he picked up the phone. And, you know, he, I was referred by three of his friends and he said, oh, these guys, he's a really smart guy. He loves hearing about these kinds of things. And um, and so we just kept talking and I said, I have this really interesting deal. It's actually quite low risk because the subsidies are being paid for by the state, by the federal government tax credit. Like, you know, 90% of your money comes back in the first eight months just through credits and grants. Right. And, um, you know, and he understood it immediately. He said, this sounds really interesting. Let me figure it out. And then I, I, then I used him as my mentor, right? So we would talk four days a week when I was walking wow. to work. I used to walk to work. And so he'd pick up the phone and we'd talk for half an hour in the morning while I walked to work. And he would give me tons of good advice. And one day he said, oh, let me introduce you to my banking friends who I've worked with. Like, this is the group within Goldman Sachs that does all sorts of weird things. And then separately, it happened to be that my business partner, Brian Robertson, his sweet mate from... Harvard Business School worked in that same group. So he was able to get him to do it. And, you know, and that's how this works. It's who you know, right? You have to have money in some ways or, or access or influence to be able to do things. And, um, and they said, oh, yeah, we'll do it at 17% interest. <laughs> so, you know, but once they came in at 17% interest at Goldman, then I was suddenly blessed, right? People said, okay, if Goldman signed off on it, and we know that they probably spent 800 hours trying to figure this out then it must be something worth investing in. And, you know, by the end of 2007, which was about two years later, we were getting money from Wells Fargo Bank at 5%. Yeah. So 
couple of questions pop up there. So the first one being um, the easiest one. You got the first investor in, then Goldman Sachs comes in at 17%. And then you said um, people assume they put in their 800, 800 hours of work. Uh, you were referred by someone, a wealthy individual, to Goldman Sachs. What is the nego negotiations like? Is it still that 800 hours of research or is it way smoother than most people assume? Oh, no, it was way harder than most people assume. I mean, like the, the thing about Goldman Sachs is they have all these people, right? And they're like 24 years old and they have extraordinary education and they're just so smart. And all they do all day is think about the hundreds of ways that this investment could go wrong. <laughs> and every time they identify a way, they write it into an email. And so when we were closing the Goldman deal, they literally just would write us. There was like this running spreadsheet. I don't think Google Docs existed back then. So they had this running spreadsheet. This was 2004. And they would email it to me every night. And they would say, oh, we added 20 questions to the bottom of the email, right? So fill out the emails you had before and here are 20 more, right? I think it was like 1,100 questions. Wow. And every night they would do it. And, and, and there's no weekends, right? Like weekends, like weekdays, it's all the same. Every day, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, it doesn't matter. They would send this thing. And, and you were like, wow, we're going to drown here. Like they're ne never going to stop asking questions, right? Like one question they asked was like, well, what are the used like used prices for solar panels. I was like, there's no used prices for solar panels. Like solar panels are so new and they last for so long that like, you know, there aren't any used markets. So I found the 11 transactions that had happened in the world and I had to summarize those 11 transactions for Goldman, right? Like, I mean, that's, that's how this works. I mean, it really is painful, but we became stronger as a company because I understood what, what they were asking and why they were asking it. And then, and they became stronger as an investor because they were learning so much about this new asset class that heretofore was scary to people and now is much less scary, right? So it was very much the thousand hour of research that they did, which then qualified you for the other companies like Wells Fargo down the line. Absolutely, absolutely. So it was a blessing in disguise almost. Um, do you find that when, you know, these 24 year olds are reviewing you technically they only at that point in life only have theoretical knowledge there isn't very much experience do you find that that uh, is an obstacle or a blessing when you're negotiating from an entrepreneur's perspective well so we do the same thing at gold at gold at generate capital so we have, you know, a bunch of 24, 25, 26 year olds up to 30 year olds, and they are doing all this work, right? And they're super smart and, you know, and we're mentoring them and all these other things. We also had, you know, more experienced people on our account, right? Joe Slam and, and Neil Arbach and others who've gone on to like, they, they learned so much from us. They entered the renewable energy space. <laughs> they left Goldman and started their own renewable energy fund. And, um, but, and so they were mentoring and they were guiding and they were helping and saying, hey, you know, this particular answer isn't that important. This one is more important, you know? So I think both have their role. Like it's, it's very important for entrepreneurs to recognize that investors should be skeptical and you'd want them to be skeptical. You don't want them basically saying, oh, you know, like, you know, you come from a good family and you're a good guy, therefore we're going to give you money, right? Because like that leads to a lack of discipline. And when you have a lack of discipline, then you have failures. 
right? So you want people to have that kind of scrutiny. And then at the higher up levels, you want people who are going to read the data carefully and not reject uh, deals that have, you know, unknowns or issues, but in, in fact, interpret the data properly as to whether this is a good investment or not. And, you know, to his credit, Neil Arbach had to fight tooth and nail to get our deal approved. And he was able to get it approved by, you know, Goldman's board. But, you know, like it, it was touch and go. It, it, it could have been rejected, right? So, yeah. Do you find um, this is the most common question, especially like when you look at startup funding events, a lot of startups come through. Um, when they go through more institutional venture capitalists or like these banks, all these questions come up and I keep hearing how time consuming it is. When I hear your story, I can just imagine how much more time consuming it was than the stories I already heard. So how do you still build your business and deal with a thousand questions, literally? Well, it depends on how central your business is to receiving our money. Right now, Generate is far more um, efficient with investor, with entrepreneurs' time than Goldman is. So we can generally get something done in 200 hours as opposed to 1,000 hours. And that's because that's is all we do. So we actually are already partial experts in all of these fields. And so we just need to fill in the gaps of the knowledge that we don't have. We don't have to start from square one, which a lot of other banks have to do. But separately, you have to think about what they're trying to do, right? What Generate Capital is trying to do and Goldman Sachs and others is they are trying to bring at least a billion dollars to any particular problem that they work on, right? For them, doing a $50 million deal isn't really that interesting, not an in infrastructure, right? Because infrastructure is measured in trillions of dollars. So if you're not doing a billion, you're not really infrastructure even if your risk profile is, is infrastructure. So then the question is, if the entrepreneur comes to you and says, I've got $18 million worth of deals that I need financing for, and you're not really clear that they're gonna grow much beyond that. Maybe they get to 50 million, maybe they get to 100 million, but they're not gonna get to a billion. Then the question becomes, what should they expect for a cost of capital? Should they expect to ever get single digits, six, seven, eight, 9% interest money, right? And the answer might be no. So then the question becomes, what are your alternatives, right? You can clearly get more venture capital, but venture capital wants 35% returns, right? They want a 10x return over, you know, 10 years or whatever it is. And so, so, so you know, can you afford to pay 35% returns? Probably not. So then, you know, what interest rate do you want to pay? There's venture debt, right? Venture debt will come in and give you... Uh, low interest financing, and then they want 20% of your company in warrants, right? Or uh, you can get, um, you know, a family office might come in and say, for us, $18 million is great. We're happy to do that. But we want, you know, 12, maybe, maybe they say it's 9% interest, but then they want, you know, $500,000 in fees because they want to cover the time of the people on their platform that are having to work on it, right? Which then on an $18 million deal means that you're increasing the interest rate from 9% to 14%, right? But I think in general, most entrepreneurs just get offended by the process. And, you know, I think what I did differently is I, I didn't assume that people were trying to cheat me. I was trying to get in their mind and saying, why is this what they need to be motivated to work with me? 
because that's ultimately what you're asking for, right? They have a hundred different investments in front of them and you want them to choose you over the other 99 investments, right? And they're saying, well, to do that, I need this higher rate of return and I need to pay for my staff's time because otherwise, like, you know, we could end up getting to the finish line and not consummating a deal and then I've wasted all this effort, right? And I think in general, people just need to be less offended and really try to understand what the investor is asking for and why they're asking for it instead of assuming they're just greedy. Yeah. Maybe then uh, also from a more practical sense, then how do you manage the time to really fully operate your company while answering the 200 hours um, of questions? So is, is, do you hire someone uh, that will become interim CEO while you're dealing with the investors? What is the best way that you've seen in your career it being handled? No, you have to have partners for sure. Right. I mean, one of the things that I learned early on and I mentor a lot of entrepreneurs now, and it's shocking to me how many entrepreneurs I meet where you have one CEO and four people who clearly are junior to the CEO. Right. And when I started Sun Edison, I had four equals that joined the company together. Right. So I started the company and then I brought in Claire Broido Johnson and Chris Cook and then Brian Robertson. And Brian Robertson had done this before. So Brian spent 99% of his time managing Goldman and all these questions and everything else. And I helped, right, because I had all the solar-specific knowledge, obviously. But Brian managed the process and managed the personalities. And it was his friend, Manoj Dengla, who was at, um, at Goldman, right? So he was able to talk to his friend about what was important, what's not important, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I spent my time continuing to build the pipeline so we had more customers, right? Because Goldman also said, hey, you know, this is a small pipeline. Are you sure that you have a large enough pipeline for us, right? Um, so, like, so, so we were focused on all of those things. And I think it was important for us to, uh, to do all of that. So pretty much if you're building a business that will potentially gain investors or sell or exit or just grow really big, um, it's... Is that the reason why solo entrepreneurs aren't that investable? Because their business model can't get big enough? No, because, uh, yeah, pretty much. Or because their time would be split too much to manage the investor and grow the business at the same time? No, you just have to bring in a partner. I mean, that's the thing is like, I think in general, yes, this business cannot be done by one person with four junior people assisting them you need like four equal partners at the top to be able to do it. And it's a big red flag when I meet entrepreneurs in the infrastructure space and they say, oh, I'm in the infrastructure space. Really? Why is there only one senior person, you and four junior people working for you? Well, I want to own all the stock. It's like, well, then you're going to fail, right? Because if you don't have people with these skills across the entire value chain, then you're definitely not going to be successful. Um, then a question that I had, um, you were talking about the whole infrastructure space and obviously you brought up you know, how it's built, uh, cement, all that stuff. Did you see the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation letter that just came out like a couple of months ago, I think? Or I did. Or a couple did. of weeks ago? Uh, what, what was your perspective on like this new angle that uh, Bill Gates is taking? Well, before it was all about you know helping the pandemic, but I feel like now he's shifting towards uh, really solving the climate problems and then focusing on these, what he calls non-sexy t 
topics like cement and, and all these infrastructure things um, that nobody really looks at. Can you like elaborate what your perspective is on that? And Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm glad that Bill Gates is putting his money in this area, right? I'm also glad that he's finally realized that he should stop investing in coal and mining and other things, which he's been doing as of last year, right? So like, I think he's starting to realize that he should stop doing bad stuff and start doing good stuff. And but but to me, he's one of thousands of investors in this space, right? So I don't think he's anything different than, you know, when Mark Andreessen said he was going to do something here or or, you know, uh, Reed Hoffman said he was going to do something here or there's lots of people who have found religion and said that, you know, we're going to now work on the largest wealth creation opportunity on the planet. Well, obviously, like if it's the largest wealth creation opportunity on the planet, then you should be involved, right? You know, but we we defined it with Richard Branson, right, in the Carbon War Room back in 2010, right? Richard, myself, and others, like, you know, defined this space as the largest wealth creation opportunity of our lifetimes back then. So it's not surprising to me that investors are coming in. I do think that Bill Gates really believes that technology can save the world. And... In general, I would say that that has not been proven in climate change, right? That it's really more about labor practices, environmental just justice, inclusion, right? You're you're setting up infrastructure for seven plus billion people in the world, right? And you and so therefore you need a stakeholder process. Whereas the technology will save the world mindset is the philosopher king mindset, right? I'm smarter than all of you. I I will create a product. And you will just do whatever I like show you because I'm smarter than all of you and I can understand it all and you can't understand it. So, you know, it's fine. But when you when it comes to clean drinking water and electricity and and roads and bridges, like I just don't think that model will work. And so I think he is starting to understand when you read his book that came out, his message is far softer than his his talking points. I think he understands that technology is actually not as essential as um, the softer skills of how you convince people to implement these technologies. I mean, my argument to that would then be just like a normal person who is obviously not uh, in infrastructure. I'm just wondering, you know, with the pandemic, the Bill Gates had this big speech 10 years ago, five years ago, whatever, warning everybody. And it wasn't just Bill Gates. There were books written about it. Uh, fire, epidemic specialists saying literally if a breakout would happen it'd be in China on one of those markets literally books from 10 five years ago whatever um, and nothing was changing because everything you just mentioned the, the practices uh, the entrenchment of the bureaucracy the, the government everything it just seems like a very tedious and hard process to change that whereas then Bill Gates obviously tries to go the technology way. Do you really believe that we can go the traditional way and change the traditional way over technology? Because from my perspective, I'd assume technology would be kind of our only way out of this. Well, technology is always the only way out of this, right? But, but the problem is, the question is, what part is, what part does technology play in the story? Right. Remember that, like, when Hitler came to power in Germany, the New York Times was celebrating it. Right. The New York Times basically said the Weimar Republic was so terrible. I'm so glad that they have good leadership now in Germany. Right. 
that was the story, right? Like FDR knew that we were going to enter World War II. He hired one of the top auto executives in the world and had him work in the government for four years before Pearl Harbor to prepare us for war. But he knew that he didn't have the American people behind him. So he had to wait till Pearl Harbor happened. And then he said, we got attacked. We have to enter the, the, the war, right? But like until that time, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of people were like, oh, should we enter? Should we not enter? This is Europe's war. We don't need to get, get in, yada, 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 right? And so, but in the end, we won World War II based on technology, right? The atomic bomb, dropping the atomic bomb, all those things, right? We, we won based on technology, but technology was not the most important aspect of winning World War II. The most important aspect was that there were hundreds of thousands of men who died, who were willing to die, right? And I think in general, climate change is the same. I just don't think any of us really understand war because like war has happened so long ago that we don't remember it. But you think about it, right? We are literally losing people, right? Several dozen people died in the Texas cold snap this last time around, right? How many people died in California out of all of the wildfires, right? There are literally hundreds of thousands of people dying every year from um, like their homes getting flooded out because they live in low-lying area and sea level rise. But I mean, you're saying that, right? And obviously, I feel when I look around myself and people are educated, this is not an issue. Everybody understands that. But when you look at the majority, clearly, uh, not sorry, not the majority, the majority seems to understand this. But when you look at, for instance, the elections, you know, there was still a lot of millions of people who, for instance, voted for people who don't believe in that. So clearly, whether you believe in, you know, left or right or whatever, there's clearly a big amount of people, millions of them, that that this isn't really, this isn't Pearl Harbor to them. You know, a couple of hurricanes or wildfires, I feel like they almost don't understand because it's such a gradual increase. They don't understand that this is happening. So how do you, with climate change, how do you explain to them that this is as bad as, you know, war? Obviously not in comparison to what was happening in World War II. But I think over the long term, a lot of people agree that if we don't do anything, it'll be even worse. It's already worse than World War II. But because of the gradual increase, how do you show that to people? Because nobody's going to believe it because it was so gradual. Their arguments would be there have been wildfires. And then our, like obviously the scientists' argument is, yeah, but not 10 times more. But then how do you explain that to those people that aren't literate in that? I don't think this is about explaining it to people, right? Like, I mean, there are millions of people in this country who follow a leader. And when the leader says this, then they say, okay, this is my leader. This is what he said, right? So like, it's not like all these millions of people are doing a bunch of research on, you know, the news and like reading all the articles themselves and then making a determination. They said, well, my cousin said it's not real, so therefore it's not real, right? And so like, I mean, the fact that like, we're not going to go in and change their mind. Like, I'm, I'm not suggesting that. What I'm saying to you is that like, is when you think about what it is that, that, that that this is going to do and how it changes your life, right? So for instance, there are many, many people in the United States 
who have a vacation home, right? They have a small cabin or a small place near the ocean because they, they just believe very strongly in it, right? Some of those, some of those homes have become quite valuable, right? So their, their dad bought it and built it by hand, you know, 40 years ago, it was worth $30,000. Now that piece of land is worth $1.2 million, right? In Charleston, South Carolina today, it is not possible to sell that land. Nobody wants to buy it, right? Because, because the water table has come up. So now all the wells that they were getting fresh water from are brackish water, right? And so now they just lost $1.3 million, right? They thought that they were worth $1.3 million and now they're worth zero because nobody wants to buy that house, right? All of the banks in that area lent them money at $1.3 million, right? They got a mortgage on that house of $1.3 million. That bank is now going to lose all that money, right? The entire banking sector in the United States is built on real estate, right? So if an entire parts of the real estate industry go bankrupt, right? Think about it. In Houston today, there are multiple neighborhoods where every time it rains more than one inch, every time there are house floods, right? I mean, you're, you're definitely saying arguments that... I completely follow and I agree. Obviously, we didn't start a funding event. We've uh, helped a ton of energy startups as well. But I mean, sometimes I'm when I consume the news, I try to consume, you know, everything from left to right to the middle. And the thing that, for instance, bothered me is um, when the Texas snow hit, um, pretty much the wind energy got blamed, even though it was only 25% of whole Texas and all the others failed as well. Um, but so again, to me, that tells me that's definitely a problem that's not going to be solved within that generation. So that means only the next generation, if they're properly educated, will have a fighting chance to but change But it's not policies. a problem for this generation either. We have contracts in place to build $30 billion of additional solar, wind, and batteries in Texas over the next three years. Not, not 30 years, three years, Right. None of those contracts have been canceled based on what Fox News said. Every one of those county commissioners and mayors and even state legislators are saying, we want that money to be invested in our state, right? So on the one hand, they're saying, Tucker Carlson, feel free to talk about whatever you want to talk. On the other hand, they're signing contracts for these projects. None of these projects are delayed. So the sentiment, okay, so... That, okay, that is interesting. I didn't know that. So on the one side, you have, you know, what is actually happening on the front, but then on the back, you know, the infrastructure, the main people do understand the shift towards green energy is necessary. Um, yeah, okay. No, that, yeah, that's I mean, on top of that, the most powerful stories out of Texas were the people who had electric cars, right? They were able to power their whole house on electric, electric cars. Right, the Ford F-150 has a 7.2 kilowatt inverter in the back, right? And you can plug your whole house into the, into the Ford F-150. Now that car is becoming the most popular selling car in Texas. Really? I didn't know that. People were able to live in their Tesla and the Tesla would keep it at whatever temperature you wanted. How, how did they charge the Tesla then? They didn't need to charge it. It lasted the entire four days. I. I drove a Tesla and that battery would f 
fall uh, that battery would finish after the second day or something no no not well not for this mode they have they have a mode called camping mode in the All tesla right. and you yeah. you can live in your tesla right you have a sleeping bag you have your coat on and you're living there and they were able to keep some warm for four or five days right and so like my point to you is that like for whatever reason, the news media wanted to talk about wind and they want to talk about Gritty, the group that like did the real-time pricing or whatever. But there's only like 10,000 customers on Gritty. It didn't really matter, right? The vast majority of people on in Texas were on fixed price contracts, right? So like I, that's what I'm saying is that the world is moving this way, right? Not, the International Energy Agency said that 90%, 90 of everything that got added to the grid globally last year was renewable energy wow okay 90 percent was that was added to the grid last year globally was clean energy right and so you're like okay so we're winning over here the media is trying to use some other narrative over here i get it but like am i losing any contracts am i losing like any um economic opportunities no so then you know like let them scream over here it doesn't matter that, that's good to know i didn't know that um the other argument then is okay so you're not losing contracts on renewable energy but um i saw an interview i think it was also with bill gates where um i think he asked the biden administration to look into um revitalizing you know these infrastructure in this, uh, specific niches like how cement is being done the steel industry i think it was also and the biden administration's answer was pretty much that this is too much uh, to change and it, it wouldn't be received well. Um, I think it was something along those lines as an argument. Um, do you agree that, do you agree, do you think that the Biden administration could be more aggressive with that? And, and if so, how would you convince people or, or those specific niches that are the biggest consumers of, you know, bad stuff for the environment to change? Yeah, I don't know this specific story, but it's not surprising to me people say no to Bill Gates. I think he's, you know, generally asking for things that he himself would not put his own money behind, right? And so I think it's usually disingenuous, right? And that's the problem, is that when you think about decarbonizing cement and, and steel, we actually have a huge number of research initiatives in decarbonizing cement and steel. Right. So like in Sweden, they actually just installed the hybrid system, which allows you to make steel with hydrogen. Right. Really? And now you can make that. green hydrogen. Right. So most of the steel in the United States is actually not new steel. It's recycled steel. So that is done with an electric arc furnace. Right. So that can be 100 percent renewable energy. So the most recent plant that was built in Missouri, that's 100 percent running on renewable energy, like a wind farm now. Right. So so like in general, I don't think there's actually any lack of movement on steel and cement, and there's lots of research and development happening through ARPA-E and some other programs for steel and cement entrepreneurs. The problem is, is that the steel and cement industry in general is, is quite, uh, well, more, I would say steel, not cement, but steel is quite a global commodity, right? And so it's very difficult to do this for the steel industry without coordination with China and other places. Because otherwise, like you might say, hey, you know, my cost of steel just went up by double and I can get it cheaper from China. Like, why are you forcing me to buy U.S. steel? Right. 
And so there's a lot of complicated stuff in there, which Bill Gates probably didn't mention in his comments, but like, but that, you know, government officials have to figure out. But I would say that the Biden administration has probably been the most progressive administration in history on climate, right? So I don't think that anyone is accusing them of going slow. I think that, you know, they're just trying to figure out all the different pieces and how to put it all together. That, um, yeah, I think I probably, I didn't know any of this, so it's definitely much nicer to, to hear the other story. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Um, where, where do you think, especially with Generate and the team there, where do you think you will be mostly focused on in the future? Uh, what do you think is going to be the thing or what are the things going to be that are going to shift us towards a better climate? So there's, there's about 45 sectors that are identified by the International Energy Agency that are essential to decarbonizing by 2050. What they have said is that we're, we're basically on track for like three sectors to reach the decarbonization goal by 2050. And we have two more that might be, you know, might be on track, but it still, you know, needs a little bit more uh, of a J curve, right, to, to do it. Um, but the other sort of 40 areas we're not on track on, right? And so Generate has certainly looked at the technologies and the companies that are available in all 45 tracks, right? We have deals that are in our pipeline and all of those tracks. Now, that being said, ultimately, we are subject to the same laws of nature that the next investor is, right? Which is that just because a technology makes financial sense doesn't mean that the entrepreneur is any good, right? So for us to make money, we have to back entrepreneurs and companies that are led by good people. And so there are many sectors where we think the technology is amazing. And then we look around and the entrepreneurs are all terrible, right? And so, so we will continue to study those sectors um, and we'll continue to look at finding ways to finance things in those sectors. And in fact, I'll keynote conferences for those sectors and tell them that they're all terrible. Like there was a, there was a keynote I did in recycling and I was like, wow, all of you guys are terrible, right? We're not funding you because all of your business plans are flawed. Like if you want to write a good business plan, let me know. And we're happy to help you write it. Right. But like, you're basically assuming that the Chinese government is not going to change their laws. Like you're make, basically putting that risk on me. That is terrible. The Chinese government makes all sorts of changes all the time. To suggest for a moment that I'm going to like make, make a 20-year investment and in three years the Chinese government changes their mind and now I lose my whole investment, that's not a great like, deal for me, right? And so, so in general, I would say that, you know, Generate is successful by finding great entrepreneurs that we can back or corporations, right? I mean, these days all the Fortune 500 companies are also uh, pivoting their businesses to grow their climate change climate solutions divisions, right? So we're partnering with them as well. And, and then, you know, like, and so we grow based on the sectors that have competent leadership. Yeah, that's a very relevant question that I have then. What makes a great entrepreneur for you? Could you go as detailed as possible? Because I assume people will be listening. We have a ton of impact startups. So maybe um, someone will pop up and yeah. So what makes a great entrepreneur? So I think a great entrepreneur, I'll just talk about myself for a second and then like try to like compare it to others. But like, I mean, I have a lot of confidence. A lot of people would say that I'm arrogant, 
that I'm overconfident, right? I mean, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs have those qualities. But the other thing that I recognize is that what I'm doing is hard. It actually is maybe virtually impossible, right? That it actually requires a lot of help, right? That I actually can't do any of the things that I want to do by myself. That I actually need other people who are more powerful than me to see things the same way I, I see them, right? And that level of humility is lacking in most of the entrepreneurs we talk to. They're like, I'm the best. Look at this company over here. I just spacked my company. I'm worth a billion dollars. I have $400 million in the bank. I was like, yeah, you're still an idiot, right? I read your business plan. Just because these investors gave you a bunch of money doesn't mean that you actually have gotten the bones of what you're doing correct, right? The risk reward here is still upside down, right? And so I, I understand you're 100% equity financing it, right? But there are still three ways where you can lose all your money. You need to protect yourself from these three ways, right? And if they're not willing to listen to just basic feedback and they're not willing to be humble about the process of the 200 hours of questions and answers and all that other stuff, and they're saying, screw you, we can just raise more money over here, right? Okay, I get it, man. Go for it. You, you be you, right? You're worth a billion dollars in paper right now. Let's see if you can sell all your stock and you know move on. If you can, great. You'll be able to buy a big boat. But I don't think that you're going to be able to actually deploy 50,000 units of your technology just by being worth a billion dollars, right? You can only deploy 50,000 units of your technology if the entire ecosystem, you know, goes in place with you. Yeah. So, th so that's humility, obviously, uh, and also taking feedback. Uh, can you get more detailed and more practical as to somebody comes to generate, has a pitch deck or, or whatever, what, what makes a good entrepreneur that is investable for generate or for you specifically that you're looking at this he or she person and, and just saying this like this person like they're gonna make a dent in the infrastructure business well i think that you have to look at all of the pieces right so like so what makes infrastructure investable is four things right the technology has to be risk-free right so it has to be fully proven right otherwise it's not deemed infrastructure the second is that you actually need someone who wants to buy what you're selling, right? So there actually has to be an offtake agreement. Third is you actually need to have sufficient feedstock. So like if you put a recycling facility in the middle of nowhere and then you can't find any plastic to put into that facility, well, then you're not going to be successful, right? And the fourth is you need to find someone who can operate the facility and make sure that it's working, right? Because if it breaks down, well, then you can't make me any money, right? So those are the four things I need. But then the, the, the fifth thing, which is different than the first four, is you need an operating environment that the government actually allows you to operate in, right? And that's the weird thing about this space, right? A lot of people are basically libertarians, right, out of the Silicon Valley space. And that's not how infrastructure works. The infrastructure works because the government says, we want you to stay in business. That's how it works, right? If the government says, no, we don't want to do any recycling here in the United States. We want to put all of the recyclables on ships and ship them to China, which is what they used to do. 
Well, then how are you going to set up a recycling business here in the U.S.? Right now, China has said, we don't want your recyclables anymore. We want them to stay in the U.S. Now all the governments are saying, well, we don't know what to do with all these recyclables. So they're burying them in landfills. So you're separating them at your house and they're still burying them in landfills. Right. And so so now a bunch of companies have to start to do this stuff. Right. But I was like, yeah, but what happens if the government of China changes their mind? Right. Is the city of San Francisco going to back you up and say, we're going to give you whatever subsidies it takes to make sure that the uh, recycling facility can be profitable. Right. That's the that's the job of government. How do you start that business then if the government can switch every four years uh, and different decisions are happening? How can you do anything? You can't. You have to get you basically. I mean, so how do you start an airport if the government can change a decision every four years? Right. Well, you have laws by which the government can't change their mind every four years. Right. They, they you set up an authority. Right. You say, hey, this authority has the job of taking all the recyclables and finding the best value for them. And then you say, sign a contract for 20 years and say, we will collect all the recyclables from all the people and we will deposit it at your facility. You are now the official county, you know, recycling center, right? And you, you create all these things. This has been done before, right? Like the government does this already. But I think entrepreneurs say, but my technology is better. I can turn plastic back into oil. I was like, fine. But like, that doesn't mean that you will get guaranteed access to the plastic, right? And, and so like everything we do, whether it's electricity or water or agriculture or plastics, recycling, waste, <clears throat> this is all of the framework, all of the, all of the ways in which we make money are determined by the government. And so if you don't know that as an entrepreneur, then that scares me, right? Because like, because you clearly don't understand how infrastructure works. You understand how technology works, but you don't understand how infrastructure works, right? And so, so that's the other thing that we look at, right? And, and it's, a, it's a difficult thing, right? So the way it sounds like, obviously, I don't think then Generate accepts startups that are very small, or do you accept very early stage startups that have the potential to become we mentor small startups all the time so there are small startups who say we have a new way of making green hydrogen right and uh, we have raised our seed round or a round and we'd love for you to evaluate our technology we'll look at it and say yeah the basic chemistry of this technology is not new you know you're just redoing you're reusing an old process for a new application right so there's no technology risk here we're happy to finance you once you figure out your your project, right? Or we might say, actually, this is a brand new chemistry, a brand new thing. It's, it's groundbreaking. It's amazing. But we need to see it in the field working for five years before we're willing to finance it. Interesting. So, so you, you guys pretty much step in when you know this can be big. It just kind of needs that extra push to go. We'll forward. mentor people early because we recognize that if they make a mistake early, then when the project comes on the other side three years from now, it will be a project that we cannot finance because they did it incorrectly. Yeah, correct. That's yes, yeah, so smart. Um, really cool. Um, that was that part. I want to go back a little bit uh, to, to the past in your story because we went really um, into the whole administration, infrastructure. I want to talk about your first mentor because um, we kind of skipped through that story. 
you went from going to your university to finding one of the wealthiest individuals um, that could pretty much get you into Goldman Sachs. I feel like there's a story in between. Uh, how did you get into that room? Because obviously that doesn't happen every day. I'm pretty sure there are some people listening here. They want to start their own business. They don't know anybody. Uh, it feels very daunting to just meet a very wealthy individual and then take it from, uh, from the story that you told. So how, how did you get into that door? What were the steps leading up to that? Yeah, so I, um, I met Mike Miller in 2003 through another person that I had met, Bruce Park, and, you know, and we were just networking. But one thing I realized early on, right, I went to all public universities, right, University of Illinois for my undergrad and then University of Maryland for my MBA, is I, two of my business partners, Claire Broido Johnson and Brian Robertson, went to Harvard Business School. And it was super important for me that they went to Harvard Business School. Their contacts were super valuable for us, right? I mean, Claire Broido Johnson, if it wasn't for her, we would have never gotten contracts out of the electric utility industry. Like all of her friends were in the electric utility industry and they gave us a chance because of her, right? Goldman Sachs really only gave us a chance because Manoj Dengla and, you know, Brian Robertson went to school together, right? The fact that Mike Miller made an introduction is fine. But that doesn't mean anything, right? Like just because he made an introduction, they could have just said, no, we're not interested. But the fact that we got coached before we made the presentation by Manoj, and then after we made the presentation, Manoj gave us more coaching behind the scenes is the reason why we got into the deal, right? And so like, I think it's important for us to recognize that there is a value to having these contacts. And if you don't have them yourself, like I didn't, then you should buy the contacts by having partners right? That have those contacts, right? And the same thing is true, by the way, with Generate Capital. Both, you know, Matan Friedman and Scott Jacobs went to Harvard Business School, right? And it matters, right? Because their contacts are known to each other. And if you're going to family offices and saying, I need you to write the first $5 million check, you know, it's easier if you went to school together, right? So like, it's one of those things where I think people are like, oh, I wish the world wasn't this way. Well, look, I mean, I didn't, I was never born with contacts, right? Like my family is not wealthy or well-connected or whatever else. My dad did fine. He was a physician in a small town, but, but like, we, you know, we didn't have a bunch of, you know, hundred million dollar net worth family offices that were good friends of mine. I didn't go to a school where, you know, most of my friends, you know, they were working two part-time jobs to, to pay for getting through University of Illinois. Right. Um, and so. So like, I mean, I think it's important for people to recognize that you need help. You need help. Like I'm very confident in my own abilities and my own skills. Maybe some people will call me overconfident, but I also know that you have to partner with people who have these special skills. Otherwise you can't make it. How, how did you meet that friend that went to Harvard Business School? So Claire Broido Johnson interviewed at a job at BP Solar. And I told her, I said, look, we're restructuring. We're probably not going to hire you, but your resume is really interesting. And I'm starting this company on the side, so we should talk, right? So I met her randomly through, you know, she was applying for a job at BP Solar, right? And then she insisted that we submit our business plan to Harvard Business School for their case competition. And I said, well, I don't want to, I don't want to be a part of this. Like, you know, I don't need validation from Harvard Business School. And she insisted. And so she did it. And we needed a student sponsor to, um, to participate in the business plan competition. 
which we ended up winning. And so Brian Robertson ended up being our student sponsor. Oh, wow. Right? Okay. Completely so random. Really, yeah, you just made your contacts pretty much. If it wasn't for that chance interaction, this whole story wouldn't have That's right. Off These even. are not best friends of mine from high school or college or whatever else. These are random people that I met. But I was open to realizing that I needed help. That's the key thing, right? I was open to realizing that I had a certain set of skills. My skills were the best at convincing large Fortune 500 companies to sign power purchase agreements and to agree to put solar on their roof. There's nobody better than me at that. But then getting Goldman Sachs to fund it, that's not my specialty. Getting utility companies to give us permission to put solar on the roof, not my specialty, right? You know, figuring out the regulatory system and making sure that we, what we were doing was deemed legal and not illegal, not my specialty. Yeah. That, uh, that is such a valuable piece of information because before, obviously, you kind of skipped through it and it almost felt like you just got in that room and the whole story kicked off. But this is so valuable, I guess, to listeners also to hear because um, every time we have guests on, it always sounds like they became instantly overnight successes. Uh, and, and this is just that little insight of it wasn't that overnight and... Uh, and you had a very you know, common background that a lot of people have. Um, a question that I had is you went to these public universities. Do you feel, you know, looking back, having had the interactions that you had, a lot of people obviously in Harvard Business School you mentioned, do you feel it's um, still worth it going to a public university? Or if people have a chance to go to Ivy League, they should just aim for Ivy League? No, I would, I would not change anything that I did. So I think that if you talk to my business partners at Sun Edison as well as at Generate Capital, they'll say, Jigger, you're a very unique person. And because of your background, people trust you more than they trust us. Right? And that, in fact, because people trust you, that's why all these entrepreneurs are asking us for money. Right? Like they wouldn't come to us and they wouldn't work with us, the best ones, if it wasn't for you. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm glad I went to all these public universities then and, and had all these public struggles, right? Because we're the ones who like, you know, they trust. Now, separately, right? If we didn't raise the money, then we would not be in business. So I'm super happy that my friends did. And we wouldn't like, and my other, you know, business partner like is a, is a great skeptic and a great, you know, manager of risk. And so if he didn't save me from my worst excesses, then we would lose all that money. So like, you know, I think that all of us are needed and I think it's important to recognize that, you know, that it's through diversity that you actually like achieve a stable um, business plan, a business executive team. Yeah, I like that. Um, a genuine interest that I had was in what kind of startups do you guys manage currently that have incredible stories or incredible potential that you're seeing. Could you maybe tell us some stories? Oh, sure. I mean, I wouldn't say they're startups, but they're definitely technologies, right? So for instance, or technology companies, yeah. Um, you know, today with the Texas storm, for instance, right? All of the smart meters that we installed back in the 2009, 2010 realm, you have the ability to shut off everybody's meter. 
The utility can push a button and shut off your meter, and so then you don't use electricity anymore. What they did in Texas was they actually shut off entire distribution circuits, which is what they normally do when they do blackouts. But that's like the dumbest thing ever. They could have actually set up a computer program where they can do some clicks and say, you know, we're going to shut off these people for 12 hours, then we're going to turn them on, then we're going to shut off these people for 12 hours, then we're going to turn them on, then we're going to shut off these people for 12 hours, right? But they didn't do that. They didn't use that functionality in the software. But they had the functionality. But they have this functionality to do it, right? They also have the functionality to know who has a Tesla Powerwall, who has electric vehicles, who has you know, uh, energy efficient home. They know who has energy efficient homes because they know who uses more gas, who uses less, less electricity, who has a, like as if your home is super insulated, then your home becomes a thermal battery, right? Like if, if you run out of heat, it takes a long time for the heat to go down, the temperature to go down in your house because you, you're very insulated, right? So they have all this granular information that they can pull out of your electricity bill, but they didn't use any of it to manage the grid. And it's 90% cheaper than building more transmission lines, building more you know, utility power plants, building all this other stuff, right? Why didn't they do anything? Because it's not their, it's not their natural instinct. Like their natural instinct is to say, if we're gonna green this country, we should replace all the coal plants with wind and solar plants, right? And I was like, okay. That's a very, that's a very like black and white approach. There is like, isn't there anything gray in between? That's right. But like, for instance, like, you know, we keep talking about frontline communities and poor people and all this other stuff, right? Poor people use electricity, right? They're, the flexibility of their grid connection is something you can pay for. If they're willing to like allow their water heater to be controlled by uh, a company which then sells that service to the grid, right? So that right after you take a shower, it's not heating up your water, but you wait until one in the afternoon when there's excess solar power, right? That's worth a lot of money. Yeah, that, that's what happens in most uh, like southern countries. For instance, here, when you go to the Middle East or something or Northern Africa, all these houses are on solar panels and I remember going on vacation and you'd had to click a button for the like the you know the w water to warm up through these I, I don't I don't know exactly how it worked but you click the button 20 minutes later you had warm water if you click the if you click it off there's no warm water yeah that's on-demand water heating and so you have this technology by which to do it but when you read about all the news stories that are coming out of um, Texas, none of them are talking about how you can invest a hundred billion dollars into empowering people's homes. Yeah. Right. Giving them brand new water heaters, giving them thermostats, giving them all this equipment by which they can actually be a part of the solution. That's uh, and it seems so like Texas, that solution, because the people, the whole thing about Texas is that the people themselves, uh, do it without the intervention of anybody else. And nobody thinks about how nobody do you... thinks that way. Everybody thinks command and control. They think we're going to replace the coal plants with wind and solar plants. We're going to build batteries on the wind and solar plants. And that's what's going to protect us. And it will. I mean, it, that will also work. Right. But it's 90 percent cheaper to empower consumers. So we should do both. So how do you solve that? Well, we we, you know, have played a big role 
in working with regulators and educating them and figuring this out and working with mayors. Because what we said to mayors is like, look, if, if we solve it this way, all the money is going to go into West Texas where you don't live. And if you do it this way, we're going to invest a billion dollars into homes in Houston. Which way would you like for us to solve it? Clearly, the mayors want to invest in Houston. So then you say to the mayor, why don't you ask for this then? Right? Because this will make a lot of jobs in your town, right? And so I think that in general, like, so we're very excited about this. It's called demand response, load control, distributed energy resources, right? One of the other companies that we're supporting is a company called Enchanted Rock, where they put in backup natural gas generators. And it never runs unless, you know, you have a, uh, emergency like this, but when you, when you have an emergency, we pay for the entire generator in one emergency, right? So, so there's some of that stuff that we've invested into, which is great. Um, so that's one area of innovation and expertise. The other area that we're very excited about is in waste. So we're the largest, um, converter of, uh, waste and organic waste, food waste and, and manure, to renewable natural gas. And so we're doing a bunch of that work now. And it's a big deal, right? Because for 40 years, a lot of this waste was actually going into our water stream, et cetera, creating algae blooms and all these other problems. Now we're converting it into renewable natural gas. The farmers are really happy because now they feel like they're not being blamed for all these algae blooms and all these problems. And the and you know, a lot of large corporations and government regulators are happy because now um, we have renewable natural gas, right? And this the carbon intensity score of renewable natural gas is negative because in the past, the, they were storing this manure in big pits, open pits, and like and the the smell and the methane was was going into the atmosphere, right? So now they're not releasing methane in the atmosphere, which is twenty three times worse than c o two. They're capturing all of that, turning into renewable natural gas, putting it into vehicles. So they're avoiding uh, gasoline or diesel being burned in these vehicles. And, you know, now they're running off renewable natural gas. So Amazon just announced they're buying a thousand large semi-trailers that does this. Really? Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it is. Um, do, you, do you guys also focus on Europe, Asia, Africa, or is it all in the States? We do have an office in Europe, but it's not, you know, it's just a, a starting point for us now. So we're mostly in North Where America. Where in Europe? In London. Well, but, that's uh, not Europe anymore. It's not Europe it? anymore, but it serves, <laughs> it serves Europe. Yeah, true. But so what does that office focus on mostly? Well, whatever the Green Deal focuses on in Europe, right? So it focuses on uh, green hydrogen. It focuses on controlled agriculture. It focuses on electric vehicles for Uber and Lyft drivers. You know, there's a lot of like initiatives that the European Green Deal has announced. And so we're, you know, supporting a lot of those entrepreneurs. Renewable heat is another big thing that France and Germany is pushing. Have you felt a need with the whole Brexit thing to move the office to Amsterdam or Berlin or something like that? No, because the, the way that the money travels is different, right? So the company that we invest through could be in Amsterdam or some other thing. But the people are you know, living in London. Just out of interest, are there any Dutch companies you guys are invested in? We are looking at several Dutch companies that are, you know, doing uh, distributed generation for solar and clean energy. So it's, um, it's pretty interesting. The Dutch are pretty progressive in a lot of these areas. 
what are you looking for specifically? Maybe we can get you in touch with a couple of people. We're looking for people who are looking to put solar on houses and commercial office buildings uh, and farms. And so we're looking at that. And then the other thing we're looking for are um, these electric vehicles for Uber and Lyft drivers. Uh, it's a huge market. Yeah. Have you uh, checked out there was this new car, a small Dutch startup recently announced Lightyear? Did you hear about them? No, but we're using cars from major automakers, right? Because we need it to be bankable. So it's really more the business model innovation, less the technology innovation. Clear. Yeah, there's um, there are some bigger companies in the Netherlands here that are trying to compete with Amazon. Uh, I know that Cool Blue is doing a lot with solar panels on houses right now. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're uh, they're pretty uh, f they're pretty big. Um, so Cool Blue is focused. I think they're like a they're a billion dollar company now, but I don't know if that's too big. Obviously, no, it's not too big. We work with a lot of billion dollar companies, and so like our claim to fame is to give them really cheap capital, right, compared to their corporate capital. Yeah. You should check out Cool Blue. Um, they're really interesting, doing a lot of stuff now with solar. So it could be, you know, maybe an interesting angle. Uh, they're definitely doing something um, unique, I would say. Uh, they started off as a huge marketplace. Uh, so they're very much like an Amazon of the Netherlands. I buy all my stuff there. <laughs> um, but they're definitely fascinating to look into. Um, outside of that um, are you guys also looking at, for instance, um, low performing um, regions where, you know, there's a lot of talent, but less capital accessible. So the companies are much smaller. Is, is that something on your radar that, that is popping up? It's not that we're looking at low um, uh, sort of economic development regions. It's more that we are convincing the government officials that what we have to offer an infrastructure can help solve those problems, right? Remember what we were talking about is that the government plays a critical role here. So in Europe, for instance, you could see a lot of garbage being transported um, to a region, right? That then turns that garbage into electricity or new products or chemicals or whatever, whatever, right? And so the question now becomes who wants to host that region, right? The who wants to host that technology. The same with green hydrogen. Green hydrogen is one way to deal with a lot of excess renewable energy production, right? And the grid is fully connected throughout Europe. So if you make too much power in France, right, you could make green hydrogen in a neighboring country that imports that power into its country, right? And so then who wants to attract all the green hydrogen start startups, right? So Spain and others are doing that, right? So like, so the question really is not about economic development regions because we're not the developer, right? We're not the entrepreneur, we're the investor. It's more about the governments and saying to them, hey, you have this economically depressed area. Um, you know, would you like to be a leader in this particular area? We think there's probably a 4 billion euro investment that's, you know, um, needed. Do you find it more difficult to interact with European countries just because it's such a small region and you have so many different languages? No, I'd say it's, I'd say it's the same as the U S frankly, right? Where you have 50 States and each of the States have their own culture. 
<laughs> and uh, um, and so I think Europe is a lot easier because because they admit freely that they have their own culture, right? And so you come prepared. You hire somebody locally. You make sure that what you're doing is culturally appropriate. You make sure that you understand the local conditions, et cetera. In the U.S., you need to do the same thing. It's just that most people don't realize it. And so they try to use the same solution for 12 states, and they realize, oh, wait, it doesn't work because each state needs something different, right? So you also hire someone locally, and you, you pretty much do act as if it's a different country. Yeah, because we're remember, we're supporting entrepreneurs, right? And we're supporting clients, right? And so those clients are located in those countries. And if they're not located in the country, then we ask them, like, hey, do you have local representation? Because if you don't, then you're set up for failure. Yeah. Can you um, share an example of how a company comes to you and then what and then gets accepted and what you actually do with the company? Do you have like an example of a past company and how they've grown because of what you guys did? Yeah. So in. Uh, in 2016, we backed a company called Plug Power. They were publicly traded, but their market cap was about $150 million. And they convert uh, forklifts to fuel cell, hydrogen fuel cell forklifts, right? And uh, they had you know, got a contract with Walmart. And uh, so we financed the deployment of the forklifts and then got paid every month by Walmart for the use of the forklifts, right? Because Walmart didn't want to pay cash. They wanted to pay as a service. And they required them to be up to be up and running 99, 99% of the time. And so we took a you know, risk and the technology was mature and the company was undercapitalized. And so we went in and, you know, and then they signed up Amazon and then they signed up, you know, Home Depot and they signed up USP, U.S. Postal Service and Volkswagen and BMW and many others. Now the company is worth 30 plus billion dollars. Wow. Right. And, uh, and, you know, we've invested hundreds of millions of dollars into the company and into its assets. And it's now the leading provider, uh, leading the charge on green hydrogen um, in not only the U.S., but also in Europe and in Korea, right? And so it's one of those things where the technology was always there. It was always the same. But the full implementation of it required this bridge to bankability. And once we were a part of it and people realized that we had put hundreds of hours into this company, they said, wow, like there must be something here we, that we missed, you know, like generates not foolish. Right. And so then they started looking at it and they saw the same thing we did. That is uh, smart. Yeah. Very nice. Uh, another question that keeps popping up for me, you keep mentioning green hydrogen. <clears throat> uh, my picture of green hydrogen is, that one car that Honda did a couple of years ago. Toyota, the Mirai. Yeah, the one where it's like you would go into a shell station and you would hook up a hydrogen pump and then five minutes later it'd be full. That's what you mean with green hydrogen, right? No, so green hydrogen is just the molecule, right? So the global hydrogen industry is $120 billion a year. We use it to make fertilizer, right? Ammonia fertilizer. We use it to uh, do hydrocracking at refineries, right? To be able to shorten um, the length of molecules in the oil and gas space. Um, we use it for industrial processes, right? For steel and cement. Um, and to make chemicals, hydrochloric acid, hydrofluoric acid, other things, right? And so when we talk about green hydrogen, we're not talking about transportation. We're just talking about molecules, right? 
and replacing existing gray hydrogen with green hydrogen. Um, there are separately people who are looking at transportation. Clearly, plug power's application of forklifts could be called transportation because forklifts, I guess, move. But I, you know, they're not on roads, right? How is that different? How's what different? A forklift is still, to me, kind of like a car, no? Yeah, but it stays in one warehouse, right? And so we have one refueling station and it refuels all the forklifts in one place. And the you know, forklifts are all within, you know, I mean, Walmart distribution centers are very large. It's like, you know, 23 acres under one roof. Um, but even with 23 acres under one roof, it's still, you know, not that big, right? So um, it's more of a fleet within a, like a theme park, right? You could see how Disney could say all of its vehicles on Disney World, right? are running on hydrogen, right? So it's not the same thing as saying, hey, we have a car that's traveling all around the state of California, or we have a truck that has to take goods from California to New York, and now we have to build hydrogen refueling stations along the way. Right. Do you, do you think that that could be the future, though, where they would be switching to hydrogen transportation, or is it too complicated from your experience? Well, I would say it differently, right? We're an investor, right? So like, I don't have to dream about these kinds of things. And so um, right now I have a clear pathway to about $6 billion of investments to convert gray hydrogen into green hydrogen for existing applications within the $120 billion hydrogen industry. $6 billion of that $120 billion can be cost-effectively converted into green hydrogen without major subsidies. Right. So like, so that's what I'm focused on. And once I accomplish that, then the cost of producing green hydrogen should come down by half, right? Just through experience and scale. And, and once you reduce it by half, then that unlocks an additional $20 billion worth of business. Right. And once that happens, then green hydrogen should be the exact same price as gray hydrogen. And once that occurs, I can serve the entire $120 billion market. Right. And that's without growing the market by, by including transportation. So I don't have to think about transportation. Like just the, just the gray hydrogen to green hydrogen transition over the next 15 years will keep me very busy. True. <laughs> Do you feel like when I'm talking to you, I start feeling more confident about the fact that we're definitely moving in the right track? Although you did mention out of all the industries that need to be changed, we're only at like three, maybe five. Um, are you positively looking towards the future? Do you think just by focusing on how you do it and how other uh, investors like you do it, do you think we're going to get there and make sure that we don't do any irreversible damage to our climate? Yeah, it's a tough question. So I think the first thing is to say that we is that we've already done irreversible damage to the planet. So let's start there, right? The Arctic is now running 25 degrees Fahrenheit hotter than it was 10 years ago, right? So let's just start there. I think the second thing is that, yes, of course I'm an optimist. I mean, we're humans, right? We want to survive as a species, right? If we don't make big changes, then 50% of the land that we live on now will become uninhabitable, right? Like where I'm from in India, Gujarat, now you have regular weeks where it's 130 degrees Fahrenheit, wow. right? P 
people are literally dying in the shade because it's too hot in the shade, right? And so people are going to move. You're going to have mass climate migrations. So you tell me how many people who voted for Brexit want all these Indian people living in their hometown in Britain, right? Or all these people who voted for Trump, how many of those people want all these climate refugees living in their hometown? But they're coming, right? And so if they don't want them to come, then they better figure out how we actually reduce carbon emissions as fast as possible. Yeah, that could be a good uh, argument. <laughs> right, but it's, you know, but it's one of those things where the darker part of human nature is coming out, right? A lot of people are saying, well, we don't want them to come into our country. Well, then what does that mean? They might die. Well, I don't care. I don't want them in my country, right? So it's pretty dark, right? And so I think my job and the job of many people who are in my position is to, is to explain to the million plus change makers in the world who want to make a difference in this area, how what we do works. Because the only way for us to change the world is to shift $10 trillion a year of infrastructure spending, right? Venture capital is just part of the ecosystem, but it's not, it's not that important, right? Like if venture capital has a whole bunch of successful exits and all these companies go public with a SPAC, and they are able to get their money out and they say, look, we made a 10x return. But then those companies all fail to tap into the $10 trillion when then they never really made a difference, right? And so we all need to keep our eye on the prize. If you're not, if you're not shifting $10 trillion of global infrastructure investment every year, then we're not actually on track to solving climate. What does the normal person like me or anybody you know that is listening to this i mean some sometimes people are listening are in a power position but what is, what does a normal person do in order to move us forward well it goes back to that texas conversation that we had right which is around um there's a whole bunch of people using negative talking points around clean energy and yet, Texas wants to build $30 billion of solar, wind, and batteries over the next three years, right? And so every one of the towns in this country, right, the United States has 19,100 towns and cities in the entire United States. That's it, right? So I need 19,100 people to go to their mayors and their city council and their school board and whatever it is that they believe they have an influence over and tell them that they need to start deploying solutions at scale. And those people around the world have to do the same thing. They have to go to their small town. You don't have to, everyone doesn't have to go to the president or the prime minister of the country. If you just go to your mayor and your county and your hometown and you say, look, we need to do things smarter. Here are the hundreds of technologies that are ready to go that we have never deployed. What are we doing? We need to move at scale. And oh, by the way, I can make a lot of money doing this. If like, so I'll give you an example. So we just converted um, one of the largest school districts in the United States to clean energy, right? And energy efficiency and that kind of stuff. And it's about a $400 million investment over six years, right? They have 244 buildings, right? So if you have a small town of 16,000 people, which is most small towns in the United States, 
I can invest $50 million into that town, converting them to clean energy with technologies that already exist today that are cost-effective and profitable, right? How much money do you think the developer makes in making that conversion? But how does the city pay for that? A, a small city like... like out of, out of operating like savings, because they're already paying for it. They're already paying for electricity. They're already paying for gasoline. They're paying for diesel. They're paying for maintenance. And what we're doing is we're basically converting them to electric vehicles, right? Like, you know, the average police car in the United States gets five miles per gallon because it's just idling. Electric vehicles idle far better than, than gasoline-powered vehicles, right? So the payback on converting a police car from gasoline to electric vehicles is three years, right? It's a three-year payback. So all those conversions can be done. So you're telling me if somebody gets a Tesla as a police car within three years, it's paid off? It's paid off. Even though it's so expensive? Yeah. Think about how expensive police cars are. They're pretty expensive, right? And so the thing is, is that like, this is what I'm saying. Like most street lights in the United States are still running off of halogen lights instead of LEDs. That's a one-year payback, right? Like, so when, if you're, if you're a normal person, and you're in a normal town and this and you care about making wealth for yourself and your family. You want to start a business and you want to make a lot of money. This is where everyone is going to make their money. Convince your hometown to convert $50 million worth of stuff and I will pay you between 1 and 5% of that amount to you. Right? 1% is $500,000 and 5% is $2.5 million. And the reason I'm going to pay that to you is because you're the one who made the difference. If you didn't convince everyone to implement these solutions, then none of this would happen. So pretty much any person right now in any small city could go to the mayor or maybe what they could do is just find a technology company that knows how to do how to convert halogen into LED lamps. And just by being the intermediary, they could become a millionaire already. That's right. <laughs> this is so what I'm funny. saying. And, and this is going to happen to, there are a million people in this, country, in this world that are going to get this payday. One million people are going to get this payday. And the question is, do you want to be part of that million people or not? Right? That's a, a very practical way to make money, true. And for the betterment of uh, society as well. That's right. I, uh, I absolutely love that. I had um, one of the last questions that I did because um, I think, yeah, we're definitely going well still. But one of the last questions I wanted to ask is um, something that you brought up that is incredibly important, which is um, you keep mentioning the business plan, obviously very relevant to our podcast. How do you do a proper business plan? Because sometimes we get business plans sent through and I don't even know where to start in giving feedback. So could you, from your perspective, yeah. So in my world, remember, I'm infrastructure. So I don't really care that much about the venture capital business plan. So for the infrastructure business plan, what I care about is addressing all four of the points I made before, right? Which is making sure that you prove to me that the technology is not new. It may be newly applied from a different industry to this industry, but the technology will work because I'm making a 20-year investment. So I want to know that the technology isn't going to fail me in year three. Oh, you're looking at 20 years. Yeah, I mean, this is infrastructure. Infrastructure, by definition, is is permanent, is long-term, right? 
like your water, your sewer, your electricity, your agriculture, et cetera, right? Second, I want to know who's going to buy the product and what is the value for them, right? Why does the customer want to buy this product? What does it do for them, right? In really granular ways, like give me their sales pitch. What, what sales pitch are you making to them? Are you saying you're going to save money? Are you saying that this is going to be more resilient? So like it'll work better in a changing climate. Are you saying it's greener and it's more sustainable? So yes, it's a premium, but you have to pay more. Like tell me what the, what the pitch is to the customer, right? I want to know where the feedstock is going to come from and what role the government has to play in that, right? Right. Does the government support what you're doing? Do you actually have enough feedstock to do this? So if you have to run on natural gas, if you have to run on recycling, if you have to get food, you know, food waste or organic waste or whatever, right? Solar and wind are easier because the sun is free and the wind is free, right? And then I want to know what, what is the expertise of the people who are managing the asset? Have they been doing it before? Do they have experience? Like, how is this working? Right? And and so like, so what I care about is what is the reason that this technology has to exist? Like, why do people want this technology to succeed? Like, give me the story arc. Why does do governments and customers want this to be a billion dollar deployment? Right? What is it really solving? And, and sometimes that's the same pitch as the venture capital pitch, but sometimes it's slightly different and a little more practical. How, how is it? Could you give maybe an example how it would be different? So a lot of a lot of venture capitalists, what they care about is IP, right? Is there a real IP here? Like I don't care at all about IP, right? Like in fact, I hope the patents are expired already, so that like you know I can find a replacement if something goes wrong. So like in general, like so I don't care about IP. But the second thing is is that what venture capitalists look at is. Um, are you building real um, metrics around like a SPAC market or whatever else, right? They're saying, oh, you know, SPACs are paying five times 2025 revenue. What is your 2025 revenue going to be? Like, what does this look like? Like, if you look at all the companies that have gone public with a SPAC, a lot of them, it's not clear to us that like they're actually stable companies that are like going to be around for a long time. But venture capitalists don't care. Like they, they've been able to take the company public and they're like, hey, this company is going to be around for a long time. It's going to be successful. And it's like, really? I don't know that it's going to be successful, right? So what I care about is unit economics. I'm like, for this battery that you're selling me, like, let's answer the four questions. And then, you know, is this battery a profitable deployment or not, right? Because I'm investing in what looks like real estate, right? Is the rental payments that I'm getting going to pay off my mortgage? Right. If yes, great. If no, then, you know, this is not a great investment for me. Right. And that's different than venture capitalists who are like, oh, this is the greater fool theory. I have this guy. He's going to put money in. He's going to do this valuation. He's going to do this thing. And then we're going to spac it and we're going to go public. And it's going to be it's going to make us a lot of money. And I have a six month lockup. And after that, if the stock price is still up, I'm going to cash out. And I don't care whether the stock crashes after three more years. Do you find that a lot of investors think like you or are there enough investors thinking like you? There are a lot of people who work in infrastructure, but they are not friends with the people who are in the venture capital space. So they think completely differently. Um, yeah, that pretty much answers the business plan and especially which slides you should put in there. Um, I, um, I think we're, 
the last question I would like to ask is if you would look at your entire career, everything we discussed, what are some of the biggest learning lessons you'd want to give to yourself if uh, obviously you were starting over again? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the thing that has served me well is two or three things, right? One is basically really seek to understand, right, and not vilify, right? Assuming that everyone is evil and everyone's doing things for the wrong reasons and no one cares and all sort of stuff is not a great way to learn, right? Like the better way of learning is saying, why would they make a decision that, that I initially believe is against their own interest, right? Why are they thinking in a way that's different than what I think is the right answer, right? And really seek to understand things from their point of view instead of just yelling all day, right? Because that really gives you the insights on how to maybe change their mind, right? I think the other thing that I learned a long time ago is in this business, there are very few people who actually want to do what I do, right? I would say there's less than 2,000 entrepreneurs in the entire United States who are masters at infrastructure, right? And so there's no zero-sum game here. Like if you piss all those people off, then they're not going to trust you in the future. And none of their friends will trust you in the future. And they're all friends with each other, right? And so like, you know, so, so going through and basically like working in life in a way where you're basically just burning bridges all day doesn't make a ton of sense. I mean, part of the reason I'm as successful as I am today is because I've done a lot of people favors when I didn't need to. What do you mean with that? Well, like when people were 26 years old and they said, hey, Jigger, do you have half an hour of your time? I'm like, sure. And they said, hey, can you connect me to these three people? I was like, yeah, of course, I'm happy to. What does it cost me? Nothing. I'm happy to do it. And then they became super successful and now they're 40 years old, right? And I helped them when they were 26 and they're saying, Jigger, like I still remember when you didn't have to introduce me to those three people, but the fact that you did made my business take off and now you know, I'm very successful because of it, right? And it didn't cost me anything to help them. Right. Like, but, but I spent the time to help people. Right. And I think that's super important because I think that as you get older in life, right. I mean, part of the reason I'm as successful as I am today is because a lot of people are saying, Hey, Jigger, I trust you. Right. You always do right by me and right by other people. Right. And that's why I'm going to go with you, even though I think your interest rate might be a little higher than the next guy, but that the other guy might screw me over after the deal is signed. Is that why you have your own podcast as well? To, to give back or what was the reason for the podcast? Yeah, I mean, I think that in general, the business press doesn't really give you the how, right? Like they really like, they, they say, well, this technology is cool. You know, they, this guy just raised $30 million in your series A. Here's the market they're going after, et cetera. But they don't really tell you the nitty gritty secrets around how they really got there right? Like what are, like which government officials like change their mind, which law got passed? How did this happen? Like what, what pain point was the customer really solving for? Cause everyone assumes that, oh, they're just saving money. I was like, no, like, you know, like I'll give you an example with Walmart, each Walmart stores $200 million a year worth of business, each Walmart store, right? 
So if you put solar on the roof and you promise them $15,000 a year in savings, are they really choosing solar for $15,000 a year in savings? Right? But that's what everybody says. They said Walmart's saving 8% on their electricity bill. 8% sounds like a big number. But it's 15%. Who cares? Right? I mean, it's $15,000. Who cares? Right? So like really understanding why is Walmart making this decision? Why are they doing this other thing? Right? Like I just think that in general, um, that, that stuff, right? Like always gets lost in the noise. And that's why the podcast is so important is we're telling people, here's the real reason this deal got done. Here's the real reason that this governor passed this law because he was getting pressure from the dairy industry or getting pressure from this industry. Like, here's the real reason this got, this got done. And the reason that that's important is because then you'll actually like make different decisions as an entrepreneur as to where to spend your time. Yeah, I totally agree because when you're looking as a beginning entrepreneur, the only news you get is the media news. And this seems like pretty much how the entire podcast went for me. It just cuts through the noise and shows you exactly what is happening. And it influences my decision making already. I mean, who knows, maybe someone listens to this podcast takes it takes us up on the idea you gave them uh which is like changing the halogen lights into lead lights and suddenly becomes a millionaire sends you a message hey you just made me a millionaire <laughs> nothing would make me happier yeah no i like that um are there any episodes you'd recommend from your podcast oh no we <laughs> there's so many we have we've done 50 50 episodes a year for eight years now so we have 400 episodes and all of them are great. So I would recommend you listen to whichever ones are interesting to you. We've done episodes on Elon Musk and Tesla. We've done episodes on uh, waste to energy. We've done episodes on renewable what energy. What did you talk about uh, the Tesla story? What, what, what did you talk about on the podcast? Well, the lack of manufacturing expertise that, you know, on Elon's side, right? The, the, um, importance of why he built the Tesla supercharger network, right? You know, what, you know, the true nature of Tesla is that they're really a battery company and cars are just ways for them to sell batteries, right? They're not really a car company. Um, you know, there's lots of like these sort of nuances and secrets that I think people just don't really understand and realize. Do you find that um, from your perspective, Tesla is overvalued or do you look at it? I forgot um, the lady that invests in them. I forgot her name. Nancy Fund. Yeah, her. Um, so she says that it can still grow. I think it was like 10, 20 X. Do you do you follow more her stance or what's your perspective on Tesla's value? I don't really think about it, right? Because remember, I'm not a venture capitalist, so I don't really care that much about corporate earnings. Like what I care more about is real earnings, uh, like not corporate stock price, but like real earnings, like how much cash is generating is Tesla generating. Um, so, I mean, what I care more about is like, I do think electric vehicles will last 500,000 miles where internal combustion engines, like really you throw the car away after a hundred thousand miles. Um, and so I do think that is going to mean much different business models for taxis and Ubers and Lyfts and lots of other things. Right. And so I care a lot more about that. Um, then I care about, you know, their stock price. Um, so yeah, so I don't, I don't know that I've actually thought about it and I don't plan to think about it. What I think more about is, do I think electric vehicles are truly a superior product to internal combustion engines? And I think the answer to that is yes. I mean, I think, you know, the average 
car for Uber and Lyft drivers in the United States costs about 34 cents a mile to operate. And a, a, the average electric vehicle for Uber and Lyft drivers, I think, will be 20 cents a mile. So that means that they'll save 14 cents a mile, which is more money in their pocket um, if they drive electric. I think that's a big deal. Do you think that that price will go further down the more development there is in the battery? Well, clearly, I mean, the cars are coming becoming cheaper, right? That that number is calculated at the premium price that electric vehicles are at now, right? Electric vehicles are about $10,000 more expensive than their gasoline counterpart today. And and even there, it's only 20 cents a mile. So if if they match prices because batteries get cheaper and cars get cheaper to make, then, you know, it would be only 15 cents a mile. I can talk for hours with you. However, I'd love to uh, wrap up and roll out the red carpet uh, on that note. So please tell the people where they can find you uh, and a little bit more uh, what you want to share. Well, I mean, you know, generatecapital.com is our website. And, um, and probably most of my work is on LinkedIn. So that's where I've built my biggest audience. So I would follow me on LinkedIn and uh, a lot of good content there. And obviously following the podcast. Absolutely. The Energy Gang podcast comes every week from uh, Green Tech Media, Wood McKinsey. Nice. Thank you so much for uh, being with us today. And uh, hopefully I'll see you on another episode as well. I look forward to it. Thanks for your interest. If you like this episode, you can check out our most recent one here. And if you haven't already, make sure you click here to subscribe and see the next one. But if you're interested in more tips and tricks, then make sure to join our Facebook group where you can find thousands of like-minded people and you get direct access and support to any business question from the entire startup funding event team.